Hi, I'm Tara. And I'm Alex. And this is Dream a Little Deeper, a critical retrospective on the Walt Disney Animation Studios films. And today, we're going to the Hundred Acre Wood and talking about the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh. Walt Disney Productions Animation Department released two films in 1977, The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh and The Rescuers. They both came out four years after the previous animated film, Robin Hood, and a lot goes down in that time. To help organize the history section for the next two episodes, and to make sure I have something to talk about for both, I'm going to focus on politics in the animation department specifically in this episode, along with some fun Winnie the Pooh facts. And in our next episode, I'll explain what's happening with Walt Disney Productions as a whole, because some more things will go down that will make way for the Eisner takeover in less than 10 years. First, to start, I want to go over the source material, as we tend to do that when we cover animated movies that are based off some notable work of fiction. Disney's featurettes are based on books written by Alan Alexander Milne, a London author. Milne was the third youngest son of the headmaster of a small private school called Henley House. He was close to his brother Ken, he went on to get a math degree from Trinity College, but ended up becoming a writer, working as the assistant editor of humor magazine Punch before serving in World War I as a signals officer. He ended up getting trench fever after several months and was sent home to his wife, Dorothy de Selencourt, with whom he had one son, Christopher Robin Milne, in 1920. He notably was disappointed at Christopher's birth because he wanted to have a daughter. Milne's Winnie the Pooh stories are notably based on his son and his stuffed toys. The character Winnie the Pooh is based off a bear Alan got for Christopher at Harrods. Christopher named it Winnie after a black bear from Winnipeg that resided at the London Zoo. However, the second name, Pooh, doesn't have a solidified backstory, so no one can say exactly where it came from. Christopher and his mother would play pretend with Winnie the Pooh and create fantastical stories with the toy, which Alan then used as inspiration for his work. So, when Christopher mentioned Winnie the Pooh was lonely, or when he lacked fresh ideas for content, Alan would notably buy him more toys to add to the gang so that he could have more inspiration. Now, the written Winnie the Pooh stories began with a 1923 poem called Vespers, which was published in Vanity Fair. The poem received some good feedback, and it led Milne to write what would be four books, When We Were Very Young, which was an immediate hit, then Winnie the Pooh, Now We Are Six, and The House at Pooh Corner. All four books were illustrated by punch artist Ernest Shepard. While intended for children, many of the first readers of the books were adults who bought them for themselves. The last book, The House at Pooh Corner, was notably praised by all critics, except one, Dorothy Parker from The New Yorker, who in her review said she made it to page five before finding the tone and style so ridiculous she couldn't continue. Fuck her. <laughs> she also, Putting it like, on the record. In Fuck her review, Well, also, like, in her review, she said, like... I couldn't really make out what she was trying to say, but she tried to, like, change the word so it sounded like baby talk. I think to reflect how she felt the book was treating the readers. What the... F- no, I don't... That's insane. Yeah. That's ridiculous. It was It was pretty ridiculous. Um, I took it out because it was illegible. I couldn't, like, I could not tell you what she was trying to say. So apart from this review, the books were a hit in America. In fact, in 1960, Winnie the Pooh was a surprise edition on the New York Times bestselling list for 20 weeks straight. After the Winnie the Pooh books, Milne never wrote for children again and went on to have a 30-year writing career, but nothing brought him as much acclaim, something he would later resent in his life. 
Winnie the Pooh did not bring him satisfaction like his other, less popular works. He did, however, write a stage play adaptation of The Wind in the Willows, which heavily influenced Disney's short film The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. We'll get to more on that in just a second. And then after the Winnie the Pooh books, Milne's life didn't get much better. His brother Ken died of tuberculosis in 1929. He and his wife remained married but were separated. She basically spent her time in the country and New York while he saw an actress who starred in one of his plays. However, World War II brought the family back together again. Now, Christopher and his father had a pretty close relationship up until he went to serve in the war. And once he moved away from home, Christopher decided that relationship was bad and decided to distance himself. He would go on to marry his cousin against his parents' wishes, opened a bookstore with her, and hated Winnie the Pooh for the rest of his life. He never saw his father again, and only saw his mother one more time at his father's funeral. Some of our guests were also familiar with the Winnie the Pooh books and the sordid backstory of their author. Here's Tasman with more details that I didn't know about. I love the books by A.A. A. Milne. Interestingly, as we were talking about the, the writers earlier on, um, also a terrible, terrible person. Really? Um, he wrote the Winnie the Pooh books for his son, the real-life Christopher Robin. Right. And then he got so swept up in the fame and fortune that he like became a really, really absent father and all he cared about was money and monopolizing on what he created. And I think the son has written, it's either a book or like a really, really long essay that was published in some massive journal about how, not like, he wasn't abusive or anything, but how something that started off as being for him, he then became the least important thing in the father's life which is so so depressing right yeah what a fucking twist (laughs) well so damn christopher robin goes off to skull and just says fuck all y'all well and a lot of this comes from the fact that he hated the fame that came with the winnie the pooh books and cons because people would constantly like compare him to the character that they read about Um, Christopher would later go on to say he had difficulties trusting his memory of his childhood because he couldn't remember whether something really happened in his life or it was just something his father fabricated in one of the books. So that put a huge strain on that relationship. Obviously. I mean... Good lord, could you imagine? Yeah, like, all your playtime is documented for everyone to read. Like, all those happy memories in childhood and everyone's like, hey, remember when you did that thing with Kanga and you're like, did I? (laughs) Jesus. So, how does Walt Disney get involved here? The projected tale of unknown origin is that Walt discovered Milne's books through his daughters. Apparently, he heard them laughing one night and found out they were reading a Winnie the Pooh book. He figured that if the books entertained his girls, then it would entertain American children as well. He began expressing interest in obtaining the rights as early as 1937. In 1938, as I previously mentioned, Walt approached Milne about Toad of Toad Hall, his play adaptation of The Wind in the Willows, and used it as inspiration for a short that came out in 1949, more so than the original book. But even after making this connection, Walt didn't get the rights for Winnie the Pooh right away. It wasn't until 1958, after Milne's death, that his wife approved NBC to buy the television and motion picture rights to the books. The company tried to do a Winnie the Pooh series, but the pilot failed, so the theatrical rights were restored to the Milne estate in 1960. Enter Walt Disney, who secured those rights in 1961. 
Now, this really excited some of the veteran animators, like Frank Thomas, Ollie Johnston, and Milk Call, who were familiar with the books and loved them. Johnston could even recite whole pages by heart. But Walt didn't do anything with them until 1964 because he wanted to make sure he had secured U.S. marketing rights before releasing a feature. Ha ha. Funny how that works. <laughs> so if you're more knowledgeable about things than me, which isn't a high bar, then you'll know that The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh is made up of three featurettes that were made across a 10-year period from 1964 to 1974. Some might call it Disney's surprise fifth package film. You'd be correct. <laughs> But all jokes aside, because of this, when discussing production history behind the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh, we kind of have to backtrack a little bit to the mid-1960s, which is when production first started. The intention was to make a feature-length animated film. However, during a pre-production meeting, senior-level staff brought up the concern that while Winnie the Pooh was a staple of British childhood, it wasn't for American kids. While it did hit the New York Times bestseller list in the 1960s, they worried not as many people were familiar with the characters and the stories. And this is an issue that's been brought up a lot when Walt Disney Productions goes about adapting a work for a film. If you'll remember, the company created its own origin story behind The Lady and the Tramp and published a novelized version of the screenplay before the movie came out so audiences would be familiar with it. Additionally, the studio worried the source material was too juvenile to sustain interest in a feature-length picture. So, Walt and the senior-level staff decided to create featurettes, short animated films that would be based on a couple different chapters from different Pooh books. Walt hoped that when the featurettes gained popularity, he would be able to create a full-length movie. So, work began on what would be the first Winnie the Pooh featurette, Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree. As I mentioned before, Walt Disney Productions' animation department had some mega Pooh stands who were ecstatic that Walt secured the rights and wanted to make a Pooh film. However, Walt notably did not let them work on the film. Instead, he had Eric Larson and John Lousenberry, two anti-Pooh fans, animate, and Wolfgang Reitherman, who also wasn't crazy about the property, direct it. Reitherman was known for his action animation sequences, so doing something so character-based made him uncomfortable. I'm just laughing because nowadays all you hear is you have to give it back to the fans. You got to give the pro we have we're giving Ghostbusters back to the fans. We're giving Star Wars back to the fans and Disney out here saying, "Nah, poo haters unite." <laughs> well, there's an interesting reason but reason behind it, and we'll get to that in just a second. But back to Reitherman, he actually saw this assignment as a punishment. <laughs> because he just dreaded it so much. Even the Sherman brothers, who were tasked with writing songs for the featurette, had a really hard time doing it because they just didn't get the Pooh hype. It wasn't until they talked to a Pooh fan that they were able to write some of the songs. So instead of the three veteran animators who loved Pooh, Walt chose Hal King, John Sibley, and Eric Clemworth to work on the animation. Now, this reasoning was twofold. For starters, all the other animators were busy working on The Jungle Book. But also, Walt wanted to make sure that their love for the Pooh books did not blind their decision-making. He wanted to make sure the featurette was distinctly Disney, not just a Milne book put on screen. And he knew Reitherman didn't care enough about the source material to follow it to a T. <laughs> Fair enough, I guess. <laughs> there you go. The production team had three main dilemmas when working on Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree. The first, how to translate the renowned drawings of E.H. Shepard into something that looked characteristically Disney. The Put a shirt on him. <laughs> Done. I actually get, I, I do get into that. Oh my goodness. <laughs> 
Okay, the second, how to translate the story's verbal humor into visual terms, which you'll remember is something the animation department struggled with when they were working on Alice in Wonderland. If you want a refresher, check out that episode. And third, how to deal with the pronounced Britishness in the stories and make something that they thought Americans would like. In his book of Mice and Magic, A History of Animated American Cartoons, Leonard Malton says the drawings preserved Milne's illustrations while extending them into Disney territory. But not everyone agreed. We'll get to that. So, the drawings. Disney insisted the artists adhere as closely as possible to Shepard's original drawings so Pooh fans would find familiarity, but he wanted them to be unmistakably Disney. To help with this, most of the backgrounds in the featurette are based on Shepard's. It's interesting, to a non-artist eye, side by side they look practically identical, except Disney's has color on them. However, artists said they had to rework it a bit so that the drawings had a continuous outline, which was important to have for the animation process. So there's a difference there. Now on the character end, one thing they did give them, specifically Pooh, was clothing. <laughs> Tara guessed it. Good. If you look at the classic drawings, the characters are not clothed. Christopher Robin Finch, who wrote a huge Pooh celebration book, notes that Pooh's shirt is an homage to the Mickey Mouse shorts. Both are red and both serve as a sort of marker that the character is a Disney property. <laughs> I know. Okay. I have been accused. I have been accused very often. Of my of nitpicking and reaching in my analysis, that's a reach if ever I've heard. <laughs> oh, the red shirt is is a nod to the red pants. Shut up. Sometimes the shirt's just red. <laughs> but while Disney Productions felt like giving Pooh a shirt would be something Americans would recognize as the Disney style because animals are clothed in their movies and therefore they were more likely to like it. Now I need to Google if Fritz the Cat wore pants. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Did Fritz the Cat wear pants? Did Fritz the Cat wear pants? Yes, Fritz the Cat wore fucking, like, clothes and shit. It's not... D Disney does not have a monopoly on animal clothes. But Disney likes to think that they do. Disney doesn't own Build-A-Bear. <laughs> when did Build-A-Bear come out? I don't know. My point is, if animals wearing clothes is distinctly a Disney thing, we gotta reevaluate some shit. I'm it's just saying what the book said. <laughs> And the what the book said the intention Bugs Bunny behind wears the decision was clothes all the time. <laughs> I don't know just the hubris on display. God. <laughs> so as for the humor, Winnie the Pooh had a lot of textual humor, like Alice in Wonderland, that could easily get lost when translated to a visual medium like film. Walt's failure with Alice in Wonderland motivated his vision for the picture. He did not want people to say he failed again. And honestly, most critics say the film succeeded for the most part. In her essay, The Metafictive Playgrounds of Disney's Winnie the Pooh, the movie is a book, Polly T. Connolly says watching Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree is like watching a book in motion. Lisa Thomas has a similar sentiment, claiming the stories align closely to the originals and that the spellings, the maps, the way the stories were blended by the narrator made it feel like you were reading a book. 
All in all, she thought it was a, quote, sensitive interpretation of A.A. Milne's work, end quote. However, some critics noted glaring deviations from the source material that they found inexcusable. The books are known for having verses, which were all omitted in favor for the songs written by the Sherman brothers. Many people, including Thomas, have come out wishing they'd just turned the verses into songs instead of ignoring them as they captured the whimsy of the book's tone. Additionally, Thomas criticizes Sterling Holloway's performance, saying he didn't capture the growly voice of Pooh in the books but she says that his performance did capture the whimsy of Milne's tone. Additionally, some argue the simplicity of Milne's writing is lost in the feature. A lot of this is found in the notably more Americanized humor in the featurette when compared to the film. Elf Gilfadotter notes Pooh is more daft in the film. In the book, he is a bear of very little brains, but you never get the idea he is stupid. He goes on to argue that Walt purposefully made this decision for more laughs. The Americanized humor is also exemplary in the scene when Pooh gets stuck in the hole in Rabbit's house. But in the movie, Rabbit has what I would call something akin to a panic attack, trying to decorate Pooh's backside to make it part of the style of the home before woefully resigning to the fact that he'll have to live with the situation. Again, an example of Walt hamming up the situation to draw out more laughs. And this leads very nicely into the efforts to conceal the British origin of the story to make it more digestible for American audiences. The most notable thing the production team did was create a brand new character, Gopher. Shut the- wait, shut the fuck up. What? So, Gopher- I should read these books. <laughs> so in the movie, Gopher is an established resident of the Hundred Acre Wood like Rabbit and Owl, not a visitor like Tigger. All to imply that the movie is set in America. Animators also intentionally made Gopher more American than the other characters. Polity Connolly calls him working class, which I would argue is pretty distinct in his first entrance, considering he pops up as an excavation expert to help Pooh out of Rabbit's house and has a very, very intense American accent. Gopher's existence is also fairly meta, considering one of his first lines is saying, I'm not in the book, but I can help, as he gives Owl his business card. <laughs> oh. I haven't. Okay. Yeah, I know. I watched this in a hot minute. And I did watch the scene. It is there. In her essay, Look What They've Done to Your Bear Milne, Lisa Thomas goes into more detail about how the characters are more exaggerated and thus Americanized. She notes that in the featurette, Eeyore is just straight up depressed, not as philosophical as he should be. She also says the tail bits are ridiculous and emphasizes Walt's attempt to Americanize the humor. Additionally, she says Kanga and Rue are not as quaint and that Rue comes across as an all-American kid who is brash and precocious. Another thing animators did to make the featurette more American-friendly was give Christopher Robin an American accent, which did not go over well in Great Britain. And we'll get to that in just a minute. Oh my god, you and your fucking deep teases. <laughs> Some other production things to note. The featurette featured a lot of Disney acting veterans like Sterling Holloway as Pooh and Sebastian Cabot as the narrator. The featurette is based mostly on the first two chapters of Milne's second book, Winnie the Pooh, but draws upon other chapters. In order to prepare American audiences for the story, Disney Records released several LP albums accompanied with read-along books, with narration by Cabot, and sound effects and songs from the movie. It hit theaters along with the Disney short The Ugly Dachshund on February 4th, 1966, to varied reactions. American critics were pretty much in consensus that they liked Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree more than the Ugly Dachshund. But overall, people in America loved it. 
Howard Thompson with the New York Times left what I assume is a positive review, saying, quote, it's all mixed exactly right. Kenneth Tynan with The Observer said Poopurist won't like Gopher, but said it's a good adaptation. Even Milne's wife, Dorothy, praised the featurette after seeing it. But across the Atlantic, well, they hated it. Audience hated the American accents, hated Gopher, hated that the animators didn't include Piglet, Pooh's established bestie. E.H. Shepard called the featurette a travesty and was upset the character strayed away from his drawings. One British critic, Felix Baker, is pretty much renowned for his reaction to the film. He said Walt murdered Winnie the Pooh and campaigned for the company to redub Christopher Robin's voice with a British accent, which we'll get to this later, they ended up doing in 1977 for the re-release of The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. How's that for a deep cheese? <laughs> but despite the outroar in Great Britain, there was enough love for Pooh in the States that a sequel was quickly put together. In late summer of 1967, work began on Winnie the Pooh and the Blustery Day. The featurette is based on the 3rd, 5th, 9th, and 10th chapters of Winnie the Pooh, and the 2nd, 8th, and 9th chapters of The House at Pooh Corner. Yeah, I don't know how they threw all that together, but they did somehow. <laughs> it was the first animated project after Walt's death, and the last that has Walt's name in the credits. Some believed that creating a Pooh sequel was a safe move for Walt Disney Productions at the time. As I've mentioned, there was a lot of second-guessing and uncertainty when it came to the creative vision of the company after his death, and no department felt it more than the animation department. Because the first featurette got so much positive attention, and it was Walt's idea, a sequel couldn't hurt them. Work began just as the animation department finished The Jungle Book and was preparing to work on The Aristocats. Since Walt was no longer in the picture, the Pooh fans got to work on the project. This included Milk Call, Ollie Johnson, and Frank Thomas, Reitherman, who had come around to the Pooh books since the success of The Honey Tree. He uh -huh. also <laughs> he came on to direct. The Sherman uh -huh. brothers also wrote the songs again. <laughs> uh huh. Came around to the came around to the books or came around to the money. Who knows? Who can say? Who can say? The big challenge with this film was staying true to the source material while still holding on to the Disney-fied element, elements established in the first featurette. This was mostly to appease the harsh critics over in Great Britain. According to Christopher Robin Finch, quote, In short, the entire approach this time was geared to the recognition that the Milne stories could be successfully translated to the screen without needing to be jazzed up or excessively Americanized, end quote. And you can see distinct choices that they made for the second featurette to combat that criticism. For starters, Christopher Robin doesn't sound fully British, but far more British than he did in the first one. Additionally, Piglet is added to this feature and is not replaced by Gopher, but Gopher does make another appearance. Animators also used the opportunity to include more characters and points from the original, like Tigger and the Huffalumps and Woozles. The picture was broken down into sequences, and animators would work on those sequences, not specific characters like they did for most animated films. The one exception was Milk Call, who animated almost all of Tigger. The story behind Tigger is interesting. Before Walt died, he recruited Wally Bog to voice Tigger. Walt really liked Wally. He worked at Disneyland, and Walt wanted to bring him into the movie-making part of the company, as he apparently proposed WED attractions and pitched movies and television shows that Walt seemed to like. 
However, after Walt died in December of 1966, the company tried to distance itself from Bog. For Tigger, producers initially went with Walt's choice of Bog, for, as I've mentioned a lot, there was a lot of indecision, and any decision that Walt previously made, they wanted to keep. But the producers felt Bog was too zany for the children's film, so they gave the part to Paul Winchell, a ventriloquist. As time went on, none of the plans that Bog and Walt came to fruition, and in 1971, Bog went to work at Disneyland's Golden Horseshoe Review. Winnie the Pooh and the Blustery Day came out December 20, 1968 as a double feature with the live-action film The Horse in the Gray Flannel Suit, to critical and audience acclaim. It's pretty much established that The Blustery Day is the best Pooh featurette. It's praised by animation critics for its flawless example of character animation. It's also praised for how good of an adaptation it is. Christopher Robin Finch says, It's only 25 minutes, but quote, better remembered than all but a handful of the features released by Hollywood Studios that year, end quote. In fact, it was so praised that it won the 1968 Academy Award for Best Animated Short Film. Even the British audience came around and enjoyed it. The only slightly negative thing I could find was a pondering in Christopher Robin Finch's book. He claims Tigger is chaotic and loses his cuddly appeal in the featurette. But that's all I could find. Damn, he's being real dismissive of 1968 movies. What else came in? It's pretty all right. What, what came out in 68? Uh, hang on, I gotta go. I gotta scroll back a bit. Uh, that Romeo and Juliet ad- adaptation that everyone watched in high school, uh, two thousand one, <laughs> Rosemary's Baby, Night of the Living Dead, Bullet, uh, Beatles, Yellow Submarine, Beatles, Yellow uh, Submarine. Okay. Yeah, Once Upon a Time in the West, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Planet of the Apes, The Green Beret, Christopher Robin uh, Finch. What are you saying here? Oliver, the Odd Couple. Columbo, the love bug, like not exactly like pretty good year for like halfway decent year for movies, but like come on, let's not let's not be too rude here. Winnie the Pooh and the Blustery Day had its television premiere in October of 1970 on NBC. Both of the featurettes would go on to run a lot on television in special sponsors by Sears, which was the exclusive Winnie the Pooh merchandiser. With the success of Blustery Day, a third Pooh feature was basically solidified. However, the animation department was slammed working on projects it already had in the works. And since it was fairly understaffed and the company at large did not really want them working on more than one project at a time, Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2 doesn't really become a reality until the 1970s when they finish work on Robin Hood. By this point, young animators from the CalArts program are just joining the company. This includes Don Bluth and Andy Gaskell. John Lousenberry is promoted to director for the short, and Reetherman becomes a producer. Production for Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2 has infinitely less information available on it, which honestly is something that I've noticed with the animation department's projects after Walt's death. The less Walt was involved, the less information I can easily access. So there's not a lot to work with. I do know it's based on the third chapter of Winnie the Pooh and the fourth and seventh chapters of The House at Pooh Corner. I also found an interesting story about one of the soon-to-be animators, Heidi Grudel. As I briefly mentioned in our episode on The Jungle Book, Heidi was one of the ink and paint women whose job was eliminated with the introduction of Xerox animation. She basically began working super hard to become a full-time animator, but at this point in history, 
was in a prohibition period where the powers that be were assessing whether or not they would allow it. Her job was to replicate animators' drawings and fill in the action between their scenes, but she notably worked on her own sequences at home to practice. The animation department was in the process of making Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2, and Heidi sketched a sequence with Tigger to show upper-level animators. Now, here's the kicker. Her sequence was a hit. Everyone loved it. But that still didn't let her pass the prohibition peri- the probation period, which was repeatedly extended after this point. This reflects the men-only vibe at the company that's persisted since its inception. We've talked about it throughout the podcast, but there's another account of it happening close to this time period that I want to mention. So apparently, the room where animators dropped off their drawings had three walls covered with pornography from Hustler's magazine. It annoyed Heidi, so she stayed late to sneak a picture from the Playgirl magazine in with all the images already on the wall. No one noticed it for days, until the guy who worked the counter saw it, freaked out, tore it off the wall, and got really, really angry. So, Heidi stayed late again to put more pictures up, just higher, so he wouldn't be able to reach them. And doing this helped keep her sane at the company until she became a full animator in 1978. Which, if that happened at any company nowadays... It'd be a bit... First off, any company nowadays would not have a wall of pornography. Right! (laughs) But also, Queen. (laughs) We stand. We love to see it. We love to see it. We love to see it. Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2 was released theatrically in December 1974 as a double feature with the island at the top of the world. It did well, but not nearly as successful as the first two. It received an Oscar nomination for Best Short, but it lost to Close for Mondays. It did win the Grammy for Best Album for Children. Also, Christopher Robin is notably British sounding with this featurette. So there's that. So, with these three featurettes out in the public, how does Walt Disney Productions decide to take another crack at the package film and re-release them together? Well, as we enter the mid-1970s in Walt Disney Animation history, it becomes clear that the department has a bit of an identity crisis. The veteran animators and the new talent clashed and had a hard time redefining the company's image and adjusting to the changing climate of the time, as well as corporate expectations. Remember, every decision was made by committee now too, which was an extreme change from Walt and his senior staff executives greenlighting projects. So the department had a hard time agreeing on decisions. This indecisiveness turned away a lot of young talent, and if you look at Hollywood directors toward the end of the 1970s, many of them are young because they started at Disney but ended up leaving because of how bad the work environment was. Therefore, repurposing the Winnie the Pooh featurettes was a sure win for the department because they knew the public already liked them. Additionally, Chris Pallant notes in his book Demystifying Disney that doing this was a quote, predictable attempt to wring maximum profit from a collection of dormant animators, end quote. So, on March 11th, 1977, Walt Disney Productions released The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, which included the three featurettes plus some new material that tied the three stories together and gave the movie a more natural conclusion. Additionally, Christopher Robin's voice was redubbed, so he sounded British throughout the entire film. Oh, well, that's really... (laughs) I know, that's what everyone was worried about here. The film was fairly well-received. Leonard Maltin calls the featurettes gems, art that resembles the the book illustration. However, there are still some naysayers at this point. Ruth Hilviger said that Disney's work destroyed the integrity of the original books. 
The books still exist. Like, I'm sorry. (laughs) Stop it. But any criticism that the 1977 feature animated film got did not compel Walt Disney Productions to abandon the Pooh properties. The studio produced a fourth featurette in 1983, Winnie the Pooh and A Day for Eeyore. It produced a live-action show with animatronic costumes that lasted for 123 episodes. The New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh premiered in 1988 and lasted for four seasons and 50 episodes to massive praise and two daytime Emmys. Playhouse Disney produced a show called The Book of Pooh and My Friends Tigger and Pooh. Additionally, the company released nine direct-to-video features, most of which ended up getting a theatrical release. With all of this, Winnie the Pooh has made Disney an estimated $9 billion. Now, before we jump into our Pooh discussion, I want to note a few additional things about the animation department specifically. I'm tagging all this together at the end because it sets up the history section for our next two episodes nicely. So if you remember anything from today's history, remember this. I've been mentioning this fresh group of young animators through the past few episodes. By 1975, the company hired 25 new people to help take over the company as the nine old man began to move on. This includes John Musker, Andy Gaskell, Ron Clements, Brad Bird, John Lasseter, and others. However, and I'm pretty sure I've alluded to this, the veteran animators were not the best mentors. Eric Larson was tasked with doing internal teaching and training to solidify a single brand image for the animation department. Milt Call was also tasked with teaching, but he had trouble doing it. One account says he had to teach a technique, but just stuttered a bunch before telling the group to, quote, just fucking draw, end quote. And this lack of mentorship also trickled down to discussion of workplace politics, specifically when it came to unions. When prompted about unions, they would just ignore the question or change the subject. So a lot of the young artists went ahead working for Disney, not knowing the role the union played in the 1941 animator strike and continue doing at this time to help create the current lifestyle they were experiencing. The new animators assumed the benefits and wages just came naturally and that that would always be the case. But, as we'll get into in two episodes, that wasn't the case. The end. The end. So. So. The many adventures of Winnie the Pooh. I have The five adventures of Winnie the Pooh. The five however many there are there's There's three there's three i don't know the each there's like three segments but each one has like multiple things going on right there's there's because like a very blustery day also turns into as we're dealing with floods now right and then you're like heffalumps and woozles that's thrown in there yeah it is very fluid in that way like it was like watching it i kind of understood now how they were able to pull like two chapters from one book and three from another to make one short yeah yeah it makes more sense now than it did uh when we recorded that yes definitely um and it's interesting because you just kind of like it just kind of happens and you're sitting here and you don't really care to follow the logic of it you're just like i'm here i'm just here to listen i'm just here to watch yeah it's a good time we and poo Good, good good little boy As you're about to hear in this episode, and already have at the end there, Tara absolutely adored this movie. And it's a sentiment that most of our guests shared. Everyone that you'll hear from today did nothing but gush about this movie and the franchise. 
Uh, my name is Joey Hamilton. I am originally from the Washington, D.C. area, but I'm currently living in Dallas, Texas. I went to school at the University of Virginia, double majored in English and Media Studies, and have written, you know, essays and various thinky pieces uh, about movies, including Disney. Joey is a friend of ours and one of the first people we interviewed when we started this podcast, all because we know he loves and knows a lot about Winnie the Pooh. So for this podcast, I rewatched The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, which whenever anyone asks me, what is your favorite Disney movie? I say The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. And I wanted to be sure that that was right. And I rewatched it. And you know what? Nothing makes me feel as safe and kind of like just having a grand old time with some good friends like the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh. The best of those three, because it's made of three featurettes, all of which are good. The best of the three is Blustery Day, hands down. You got your heffalumps and woozles. You got the rain, rain, rain came down, down, down. You got the introduction of Tigger, which is an instant classic that, of course, made them go, okay, well, now we have to make a whole one about Tigger because Paul Winchell's just coming in here and hamming it up, and he's great. Tasman talked about the movie with a similar amount of enthusiasm. I love Winnie the Pooh so much! <laughs> which led to this moment. The podcast listeners can't see, but I'm literally hugging a Winnie the Pooh pillow right now. How cute Ooh, is this? You silly <laughs> Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> Oh, and they match. He, and he's he's the perfect size to kind of like rest oh, yeah. my neck on when I'm watching a film or something. He's perfect. I love, I love that. So That's so cute. Yeah. And then they went into why the franchise meant so much to them. I actually rewatched a whole bunch of the old Winnie the Poohs as soon as I got Disney Plus. Okay. Because I grew up with them. That was another one of like the old ones that my mum really enjoyed when she came to England. And so we watched them a lot. Tasman wasn't the only one who brought up a familial tie. I am Elise McGoran. Um, I am your friend. Yes. I work as an office manager, which is a very new transition um, at my workplace. I work in an attorney's office. I used to be a grad student, dropped out. Oh, completely. Mm -hmm. That's a new development. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Elise was in grad school for creative writing and has a deep love for stories and storytelling, which is also a big part of her relationship with the Winnie the Pooh franchise, specifically the books. My mom read the books to us growing up. They were kind of always around, which I think is different from some other people that I, whenever Winnie the Pooh comes up, it's usually in association with Disney World or watching the movies mm -hmm. when they were younger. Mm -hmm. um, we, I mean, we also had the VHS tapes right. that we would watch on repeat. Yes. Um, but, but it started with the books. And my mom, when we were much younger, we, she would have a story time when every we were day. Very young, when we you were might, very young, you might say. when we were six or so, <laughs> um, <laughs> she she would read, have a story time, and read to us every day. And then when we were older, it turned on to um, Fridays. But okay. um, I remember one time in particular, we were at the lake, and it was my mom was reading aloud to me and my three sisters. My brother was out in the woods somewhere with my dad, um, hunting innocent woodland creatures, which is, you know, kind of funny in retrospect. Right. Except it was more like a Bambi situation instead yeah. of a, you know, rabbit and Pooh bear. Pooh bear situation. <laughs> but my one of my sisters was getting married. The first sister to do so. Another sister was um, going abroad. Uh, 
during a semester for summer for college and I was um the next semester I would be going to college and leaving behind my best friend and my younger sister at home and she would be like the only girl of us left it would be her and my two brothers um and so it was a really pivotal time um in our lives a lot of change happening and I don't really like change it makes me uncomfortable anxious um I like to know what's happening and be able to kind of plan things out and kind of see it coming even if it's a bad thing because then at least you know I see it right right? Right. I can emotionally prepare myself (laughs) (laughs) but um so it was a really pivotal time and we're sitting there my mom is reading to us just like when we were six and I remember crying at the end because the house she was reading the house at Pooh Corner Mm -hmm. specifically and at the end there's this scene where and if you've watched the movies, you'll, you'll be familiar with it. They're sitting, they're taking a walk. They've just had this big party. You know, they've saved the day. Um, everyone's back together. And Christopher Robin and Pooh Bear kind of walk off on their own. And they cross a bridge and they're kind of meandering. They're doing nothing and going nowhere. And then Christopher Robin starts talking about how pretty soon he's not going to be allowed to do nothing anymore. And the subtext is that he's going to boarding school and he's going to leave his toys behind and he's expected to start the process of becoming a man, um, especially like, you know, in English culture around that time. Um, And you were kind of taking, sent away from your family to a boarding school and it was to make connections and, you know, boyhood and coming to an end and all those things. Mm -hmm. But... um, but he he and Pooh Bear are sitting on this hill and he's talking about how he doesn't want to go off and learn about school things and he doesn't understand why they're important and he asks Pooh Bear if he'll, when he's gone, if Pooh Bear will come up and sit there even when he's gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's really interesting, get into this later, um, about how each movie that I've watched has interpreted that scene differently. Yeah. But in this case, in the book, um, they're, they're sitting there and he kind of says they're always going to be there. And it's just kind of this moment in time where this change is coming, but it, you're still in that really precious moment. And so whenever, <laughs> because we, I read, my mom read that book to us at that time, like I was big, strong feelings, <laughs> big, strong feelings, very, you know, when you have such a connection to a character that that connection kind of never goes away. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like stuck inside you. I feel that with Christopher Robin in that moment because yeah. I had that moment. And, you you know, when you read a book or watch a movie or hear a song at the right time in your life, mm-hmm. and it just has, if you listen to it any other time, it wouldn't have as much of an emotional impact. Yeah. But for me, that's, you know, Winnie the Pooh and the House of Pooh Corner and kind of that moment in my life. I mean, my earliest Disney memory was when I was probably five-ish, um, and it, it wasn't necessarily the movies. It was um, my first bedroom was uh, vintage Pooh Bear, um, like the actual like old books, and um, so there were. Um, I had like this border around my room. And it had all of the illustrations, and then I had all of the little books to go with it. 
Um, and so that was like the very first thing that I can ever remember of Disney. This is Abigail Morrell, a new guest of the podcast. She is a certified English teacher from Missouri. Like Elise, Winnie the Pooh has strong ties to her childhood and memories with her mother, but in a different way. So Pooh Bear, like, I, I don't necessarily, back then I did not know what connected me to Pooh Bear. Mm-hmm. But um, so like, for example, when I was a little girl, um, and, you know, I, I had spinal muscular atrophy and I had to do certain exercises to help with my muscle degeneration. And my mother used to have me do the um, rumbly and my tumbly dance. Um, it was, you know, like stretch your arms up and then like, like, she, I don't know. That's how she got me to do my exercises was to have me do the rumbly and my tumbly um, dance that Pooh Bear does. And um, also, I, I didn't eat enough when I was a little kid. Um, she would have to wake me up in the middle of the night just to give me something because something to do with the calories and whatnot. But um, and she often used Pooh Bear. She's like, well, you need to be stuffed and fluffed like Pooh Bear. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's that's good. Um, <laughs> it, it worked. I I was like, heck, yeah, give me that banana at midnight. Um, so. Yeah, she used she used Pooh Bear a lot. And so I just started like bonding like, oh, he was my little my little friend. Mm -hmm. Um, And then my mother worked um, nights out in St. Louis. She had to drive two hours to work. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I lived in the country and really it was just like my my siblings were my only real friends because like we didn't get to go to play dates and stuff Mm -hmm. and so I guess the whole gang from you know the hundred acre woods just kind of became my friends like they seemed like a really fun group to be with um and I I mean they it just they felt very welcoming and then you have my reaction to the movie I had very odd reactions to this movie. How so? Well, so this was one that we had on VHS that I watched as a kid, but Uh I have not watched it probably since I was like very, very young. Understandable. And so I think the hype of so many people and the hype of Pooh like got it in my head like, oh, this is how you're going to feel about watching this movie. It's going to be like a warm hug. And I was stressed out the entire time. And I remember being stressed out the entire time watching it as a kid. <laughs> like, this was that, not that, that one make, that I That enjoyed. makes sense for you. That did, makes sense for you. You're yeah. wrong, but that makes sense for you. <laughs> like, I was watching it, and I remember thinking, like, well, I now, like, because I remembered the honey tree, and I remembered parts of Blustery Day, but like when it came to Tigger Two, like I was like, I don't know what that's about, and it's because I never actually finished the movie all the way through every time. I think I'd get through like the first half of it and then just kind of like stop. Weird. I know, but like. No wonder you haven't seen movies if you just stop in the middle. Well, I think it was also probably like I had to go and do something, or I was getting pulled away to do something, and just would start over from the beginning every time. But there was a lot of things in this that just, like, didn't really stress me out now. But, like, I remember the feeling of being stressed out watching it as a kid. 
Yeah, I guess so. I guess it, like like what are you what are you thinking? What are you what are you talking about? So Piglet's very existence and everything oh. that happened to him, like when he just got like literally blown away by the wind and had like no yeah. control over that. That stressed me out. And yeah. at the very end, when he just like gave his house to Owl, I uh, was like, yeah. that's I... very sweet. But at the same time, like you have nowhere to live. Like yeah, that is no, your home. I, you, you loved it so much. I, I got to that point and I just wrote down, um, where is it? 100 Acre Wood needs real estate regulation. <laughs> Seriously. Also, please teach Owl how to spell his name. I did write down this. Th- I can say this for certain. This movie ruined my ability to spell f- many words. I did not know how to spell honey for the longest time because I wrote it like it is on the jars. And my mom yeah. would just say, that's not right. But she wouldn't tell me how it was right, like incorrect. Well, that's not very helpful. So again, stress. Um, there's some other things that stressed me out. I'm trying to think. Oh, Pooh and the honey tree stressed me out because like... Not to get super deep, but, like, disordered eating was a thing in my family. And so watching him, like, gorge himself on the honey and then get stuck in the hole and not get out, that was, like, very difficult for me to watch. Yeah, Pooh has a bad relationship with food. He does. (laughs) He binge eats. And then, okay, so no one should be looking to to Winnie the Pooh (laughs) for morals. Uh, this is not a moralizing movie. No. All the lessons, like, if you look at the lessons this movie teaches you, it's, uh, I, I guess don't binge eat is, like, kind of the, the lesson of the first one. Um, but when their solution is fucking starve him. Uh, that was terrible. That, that's horrible. That is horrible. It's very bad. And just, like, watching it as a kid, and even now, how, like, obsessive he was about eating honey and like the binge factor into that it just like as a kid i was scared of him in that first one like i thought he was a scary character but i think that's also just my own trauma like that's being thrown into that and even watching it now i can't say like because i think it's just things i haven't fully worked on but like it's still still watching that as an adult made me uncomfortable like that whole first sequence it was very very difficult that's entirely fair. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, that whole first sequence is... It's a lot. Uh, yeah. I don't also, know. Like, just... Sorry, I was just... One last no, thing with that good, sequence that stressed me out. Rabbit being, like, trapped... Not, like, he's not trapped in his house. He's not because trapped. He has, he has the door. front door. But as a kid, I felt like he was trapped in his house. Because Pooh was trapped in the hole. And that stressed me out. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I I feel like this just comes down to you're easily stressed out. Yes. And the situations here speak to you a little bit stronger than they speak to me in that regard. Oh, 100%. Like, I'm just like, oh, this is a great little bit. This, <laughs> this, these are all good bits. Uh, are there problems here? Yes. But the bits are fine. Bits are all good. <laughs> I want to like it. I And I did like, like, you know, the jokes I think were funny. Like, just the fact that when Pooh's in, rab- in the, um, is stuck and gopher just disappears and he goes well you know he's not in the book just the way that sterling holloway delivered that line i he's died. not in the book so he can't help <laughs> it's so good i did yeah, like he, that part yeah. of the of the first one yeah no like i i think that like the i i i can meet you at least like halfway on the stressed out stuff because mm-hmm. um 
Like, I have a, a very large fear of things, like, flying away mm. and just being unable to salvage, and I blame Piglet for that. Because um, th- just, I can't do kites, I can't do balloons, and I blame Piglet for it. <laughs> no, that's totally fair. I definitely think, like, if, like, because I... I feel like everyone kind of resonates with one character from the Hundred Acre Wood, and mine is Piglet. Like I just, yeah, I get him. I'm like, yeah, what? yeah, same. Uh, but also, Pooh's got one brain cell, and we all know what that feels like sometimes. Yeah, and that brain yeah. cell's not a very good one. It's not. It's not. I will say, like Pooh being as much of an idiot. Like, if we're going to like see any of this as moralizing, Pooh is a great example of what not to do, just mm-hmm. across the board. Yeah, he's really not like a he. He just he whatever he's feeling, he goes with it, right? Like he doesn't really. Like you said, he's a bear. Of, he's a bear of very little brains in that he doesn't really put a lot of thought into anything. Yep, he just kind of goes. He just does the thing. Like it's in great. Tigger 2 when he's just falling asleep while Rabbit and Piglet are trying to like... Like tell him how they're going to gaslight their friend. Yes, which is horrible. We weren't the only ones who watched this movie and didn't see Pooh as a moralizing character. Here's Joey again. One, I forgot how rude Pooh is a lot, which rules. When Pooh is falling asleep at Rabbit's meeting about what to do with Tigger, it's so funny. <laughs> Hashtag rude Pooh. Hashtag rude poo. And it's not like Jim Cummings poo isn't ever rude, but original Sterling Holloway poo, like he's, you know, he, he's kind of self-centered. He wants his honey. Like he, everyone is inconvenienced by him at one time or another, even as they love him and care about him and want him to be well. Um, but yeah, you know, he falls asleep at meetings. He disguises himself in a clever little trickster ploy to to steal honey from bees. He, uh, (laughs) when he, when he needs to escape from the woods with Piglet, he lets Rabbit run off by himself and then just follows his tummy home. And he goes, well, I tried to listen to my tummy, but Rabbit wouldn't stop talking. So I couldn't hear it. But, but now I can hear it so we can get home safe. (laughs) Just, he's a little stinker and he's great. I love him. Rabbit's also, like rabbit sucks, but also mood. Yeah, I get, I get where it comes from, but also like, be nice to your friend. Be nice to your friends. It's not that hard. <laughs> just let your friend exist. We know, we know he has a lot of energy, but just but let him also, exist. Yeah, just let him be. Like, yell at him if he bounces you, but like, don't, don't try and get him lost in the woods. That's abuse. That's really mean. Really sad, actually. I was, and then like how like they were like laughing while they were in the log, like oh, like Tigger can't find us now. It's like dog. <laughs> like honestly, if Tigger wasn't Tigger, like because it would have been a lot sadder because yeah. he literally was like, "I'm a Tigger. I never get lost." Yeah. Meanwhile, like, and I guess that's like kind of the redemption, like the redeeming fact about that one, that segment for me. It's mm-hmm. that like it flips around and they're the ones that get lost and get stuck looping between pages. Mm-hmm. Which, like, let's let's take a minute. Let's talk about how this is like the the way this constantly is self-referential to the format. It rules. Oh, I loved it. 
it's, it's so, so good. fun it like we talk about in the in the history section we talked about like the worry of how they're going to avoid the literary stuff that they ran into in alice uh having a narrator that ha- like including the narrator and having Pooh address the narrator while constantly drawing attention to the fact that this, they're in a book phenomenal way to get around that oh, because so it fun. allows them to actively encompass and include the narrative aspects and the literary aspects of it mm-hmm. like the fact that when um it's Tigger that gets stuck up in the tree at the end right yeah when they when they just turn the book sideways and he comes down oh, the text sorry. it's so good and it's a it's a it's a resolution that you wouldn't expect right but it works so well because you you've spent the whole film building up that these characters uh-huh. do have a relationship with the outside narrator and to you as the audience through the fourth uh-huh. wall. Like, like when 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 we reach the end and Pooh's like, "Oh wait, what happens to me?" <laughs> and, and he's like, and the narrator's like, "Read the book and find out." And he's like, "Okay, I'll see you there." <laughs> that sounds good. And then w- when when he's like, "Owl talked from page forty-one to 62, I'm just like, "Oh yeah, yeah." Yeah, yeah, I know people like that. Well, and it gets yeah. the point across too. Like every you, you, every kid knows what it's like to try and read just twenty pages straight through. Horrible. It sucks. It's the worst. Or when the flood starts and it washes the letters off the page. Uh huh. Like that's fun. And like whenever they have to hop over the seam of the book, like from one page to the other. Yeah. And they make a big deal about like, uh, it's it's cute. The narrator as a character that interacts with other characters in the movie was a high point for a lot of people we talked to. Joey explained this form of fiction in his interview and its significance. The many adventures of Winnie the Pooh, and in general, the Winnie the Pooh franchise, is likely every child's first introduction to metafiction. Explain what metafiction is. Okay. So, a metafiction... I'm going to have to put this in my own words, but it's a story or a piece of media that uses the medium it's in to its advantage, either in a self-aware way where the characters are aware they're part of a story and can thus kind of break the rules of their world or Or a story where it matters that it's a story. Like, in The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, it's clear that when that, when you open on that live-action children's bedroom where Christopher Robin plays, that is the real world. That is where we live. It is also a movie, but that is where we live. And then they open the book, and that book is where the Hundred Acre Wood is. And through the whole movie, those characters are aware they're in a book. They multiple times almost jump out of the book. At one point, Tigger slides down the letters in order to escape from a tall tree. You know, they are storybook characters who live in a storybook and are perfectly comfortable with the fact that they have daily interactions with a narrator who tells them what to do. Um, and some of that is just delightful. You know, when it's raining too hard and blowing too hard, the letters blow across the page. I love that you can essentially read the script to the movie um, in the book. They they pretty much one-to-one what the narrator is saying is there as they're flipping the page. Um, I like that 
after every featurette, Pooh has a little conversation with the narrator where he's like, well, what's going to happen to me in this one? And he's like, well, Pooh, in, in this one, it's going to be a blustery day and you're going to have a lovely adventure. And he's like, mm, yes, that sounds very good. Um, and, you know, perhaps to a young child who might be anxious about what's coming next, getting that prompter is probably very calming. For Elise, this movie's use of metafiction made it a good adaptation of the original books, which, as we've established, she's read many times. I really love that it opens up in kind of a live action version and you go into this child's bedroom, um, very time period, and Christopher Robin's not in there. You don't see any humans and the animals themselves are represented as, as stuffed animals. They're not moving or anything. Yeah. But you see them in the room, you recognize them, and then you see the book and it kind of opens up and I think... It, Walt Disney does that with a lot of other movies. Like, yeah, but those open up with it's already animation, mm -hmm. right? And I think going into these stories in particular from a live action version and then going into the story and it kind of, you see the illustrations and then the illustrations kind of bleed into the am animation style. Yeah, yeah. I love that because it it recognizes that this is an adaptation. It's not just a like a Grimm's story. It comes from a, a book and a series, and it's something that's recognizable to people, which maybe they wanted to do because people already were fans of the books, and so they wanted to kind of hook them into like a video version of it. Right. But I love that from my standpoint, where a lot of people, I would say more people watch have watched the movies than have read the books at this point at least that i've spoken to mm -hmm. people my age and younger um that it kind of pays homage and recognizes that it comes from this story this well-loved story and well-loved characters and um i do like that there's a narrator um especially because the books themselves have a narrator mm -hmm. that speaks and interacts with the reader and then with Winnie the Pooh. Oh, kind of like when Pooh breaks the fourth wall. Yeah. You know, like in the movie. That happens in the book. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um I think I, I went back recently and read some of the House at Pooh Corner and especially in the introduction and then when you're going into different stories, there's a very clear narrator voice. Mm -hmm. And so I love that they transition that over to the movie as well. I love that at different times you go back to the page. You know, it's not just a way to get into this movie mm -hmm. like the other movies that they did. Like, they pull back out. Mm -hmm. You see physical pages. He jumps over the spine mm -hmm. from one page to the other. Yeah. Words fall. They use... Um, Oh, I, I think this is in The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, but I also recently watched the 2011 version, uh, Winnie the Pooh, that movie as well. But there's when they're stuck in the hole and they use the letters to get out of the hole. I think that's the that's the second, the next one. Okay. I think that is. Winnie the Pooh. But they did, in Many Adventures, Tigger got off the tree because they turned the book. Yes. And, and then, then he, he slides them down. Yeah. And then he, like, climbs onto the text. Yes. And then uses that, yeah, as the slide. And there's, like, it. there's wind that blusters the letters. And it's, they're physical things. Mm -hmm. And 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 I love that because it, it doesn't just say, we're taking this source and we're using it to kind of plug it into our own interpretation of the story. 
it keeps recognizing the audience that this is a book Mm -hmm. that you're just making visual yeah kind of bringing the imagination to life which is what the story does as well the story is about christopher robin's imagination bringing these characters to life Mm -hmm. and all these stories are things that happen to him but he's playing with these stuffed animals yeah so it's kind of they're doing the same thing which i love an artificiality to everything which like of course me loving to see the seams of how everything works um like the fact that the artifice of everybody involved is also just constantly in focus like Pooh being full of stuff and fluff uh everybody full of saw uh sawdust i think is what they say and and his tail being detachable Mm -hmm. uh the artifice of all the artificial characters is constantly in focus but it's never directly like remarked upon like everyone is treated as like real and people despite the fact that they are all stuffed animals except for owl who seems to be like a real owl yeah which is weird because you see the owl toy in the bedroom in the beginning yeah, because he could fly. Like, if he, I guess, well, I guess, I don't know. But yeah, there's nothing about him that would indicate he's a stuffed animal. Right. But also, like, I don't know. If you have an owl, like, I guess the notion, like, someone's going to correct us. I know who, and I also know who is going to correct <laughs> us if we say that I don't think it, like, there's probably an owl stuffed animal in Christopher Robin's room. Mm-hmm. But if there's not, I, like, when I was a kid coming up with, like, stories to tell in my brain, I would include the squirrels that lived outside my window because they were, like, part of the group as well, you know? Uh, so, like, I, ge- I guess if there was, like, an owl living outside Christopher Robin's window that you'd see every so o- that they he would see every so often, like, yeah, include that owl. That owl wants to be included. Right. Or, like, if you play under a tree and the owl's under the tree, too. Like, you're like, oh, hello, sir. Yeah. No, that was... Yeah. I agree. And I do like how... I have no thought. <laughs> it left as soon as I thought about it. You are a girl of very little brain, after all. Truly. <laughs> Just a bachelor's degree. Huh. Just a bachelor's <laughs> Hey! <laughs> uh, Tigger is the epitome of, like, a preschooler. Especially yes. in Blustery Day. I just think uh-huh. it's so funny how he comes in with all this energy and he bounces around and how he's like, Tiggers love honey, eats a hundred bunch of honey, and then is like, Tiggers hate honey. We Never actually mind. don't like honey. <laughs> and like the fact that he kind of knows how to spell his name, uh-huh. but it's like half letters, half phonetics is just delightful. Like it's like, yeah, you kind of know how letters work, but right. you mostly know how sounds work. And when he's like, the heffalumps and woozles, and Pooh is like, oh, you mean the elephants and weasels? And And he's he's like, like, no. No. (laughs) Absolutely not. Why would you think that? Uh, No, I think I genuinely, I did like Tigger. I think he added, for me, like a good little energy Uh to it. And it's, in Blustery Day, I think it's just enough. Yeah. Um. Blustery Day is also great because they give Pooh a gun. <laughs> that 
It's so cute. And it's just a little pop gun. It's not going to do anything, but it gets the point across. Also, I love how the narrator is like, Pooh decided to look outside and let the spooky voice in. And you're just like, Pooh. <laughs> again, <laughs> again, Pooh's dopiness does a great job of explaining what not to do in this situation. I think it's interesting that you bring up the word dopey specifically because it's like we have a character that we've talked about named dopey yeah and we've talked about how harmful like every like he that's could be. fair but i think i think with that it's like it goes an extra bunch of steps and tries to like hand wave away what they're doing there meanwhile Pooh's just like a little empty-headed no that's exactly what i was gonna say like it's a way to be dopey without being like you know a stereotype yeah (laughs) like an offensive stereotype elise had a deeper insight into winnie the pooh's character and the philosophy that shapes his thinking it's very philosophical i actually um last year um listened to an audiobook called the tao of pooh I cannot remember the author's name right now, but he basically talked about um, the Tata Ching, the author of of that um, the Tao a Taoist, um, and kind of the concepts of Taoism and related it to Winnie the Pooh, mm-hmm. because for him he said Winnie the Pooh kind of represents the mentality and of a Taoist. And a lot of the stories he kind of picked out to represent these really important themes and kind of tenets of Taoism. What are some of them? If you can remember. Oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it's, it's feeling the world around you. It's kind of, it's similar to Stoicism, but not as depressing. So it's like you... You can influence the world around you, but for the most part, things influence you as you let them. It's really your mindset that shapes your reality, whether something that happens to you is bad or good or just something that happens depends on how you interact with it. Mm. And so, and also kind of a, a going with the flow, the big picture, kind of taking yourself out of the little frustrations. And I'm not sure I'm on the mark here. This is just generally what I remember, Mm -hmm. the impressions that I was left with. Mm -hmm. But with that, like Winnie the Pooh is faced with a lot of frustrating situations. Mm -hmm. And I think some of the movies play up his kind of obsession with honey. I mean, he does love honey in the books, but... He also, whenever someone else is having a struggle, whether it's Rabbit, you know, getting getting himself into a frenzy, or Eeyore being very morose and down in the dumps, or Piglet being very anxious, Piglet says something that kind of flips the situation on its head or gives a different perspective. Um, Piglet or Pooh? Sorry, Pooh. Okay. okay. Winnie the Pooh kind of uh, gives... A different perspective on something or flips the situation so that so that it oh there's this line that in the first movie and then they echo it in in the most recent movie the live action version mm-hmm. with ewan mcgregor mm-hmm. um it's about sometimes when you're doing nothing 
that's when the best something comes to you. Mm-hmm. Something roughly like that. Yeah. Or um, in that final scene talking about, um, and Christopher Robin does this as well, he and Winnie the Pooh kind of play off of each other, I think philosophically, because they, in that final conversation in the house at Pooh Corner, he's talking about Christopher Robin is you know, we want to take a walk with me. Winnie the Pooh says, okay, what are we, where are we going? What are we doing? And Christopher Robin says, oh, nothing. And then he says, nothing is when someone asks, oh, where are you going? What are you, an adult asks, where are you going? What are you doing? And you say nothing. And then you go and you do it. And it's just kind of meandering around and thinking your thoughts and kind of being in the present moment. Mm -hmm. So it's all these things that from the perspective, like reading it in a child's story, it feels very simplistic. Mm-hmm. And Winnie the Pooh, I think, is played off a lot of the time as, well, he even calls himself a very small-minded bear. Right. Um, or a bear with a li- very little brain or things like that. But there's also, with that, a kind of deep wisdom of, you know, the things that really matter. Of taking time, of enjoying the little things, of of, you know, not worrying about the big things or the things that you can't control Mm -hmm. and just kind of dealing with whatever is in front of you and uh, letting go. Um, So kind of wisdom to that that I think attracts people to him as a character as well Mm -hmm. because it's fun to laugh at him slash with him but also kind of makes you sit back and think. Again, Sterling Holloway's performance in this. Holloway is lit- like literally the best choice you could make. Yes. I don't understand the complaints that his voice wasn't gravelly enough. I'm sorry. I could not imagine Phil Harris doing this. No. I could not imagine. No. Like, oh my gosh. And, like, and it's also wild because Holloway, Holloway is like literally like, it's going to be sad when we move out of the era of Disney with Sterling Holloway in it. Yeah. Um, because like every time he shows up he's a delight and he's so versatile using only like the like the limited set of tools that he can do, do with his voice you know mm-hmm. um because like you can hear the cheshire cat in here but like there's there, there's none of that character yeah um it's it, it is just poo through and through and it's delightful that's it. it like i was i remember i was like halfway through blustery day and i was like aware it was Sterling Holloway, but, like, I could not picture in that moment that voice on any other character. Like, I felt with Thomas O'Malley when we talked about Phil Harris's performance there, and then, um... Oh, God, what... And then, um, Little John in Robin Hood, you know? Yeah. Where it's, like, it's very difficult to not hear Blue in Uh both of those. With him, like you said, it's... It's him, but, like... It is so unmistakably poo. Yeah, exactly. Um, And it's going to be interesting when we eventually get to the 2011 poo to compare and contrast the two performances. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also think it's interesting that, like, you you said that, like, you didn't find that you found this movie kind of stressful and not really a warm blanket. For me, as soon as, like, as soon as Holloway starts talking, I'm just like, oh, no, we're good. We're here. It's fine. (laughs) So did you have any major critiques of the movie no (laughs) really none i i was too i think like uh like all of my notes are kind of 
I mean, other than Christopher Robin's fucking dead ass eyes, yeah, um, there's no life in those eyes. No. Um, everything, like everything else in this, just kind of works for me. Uh, it's not transcendent in the way that Fantasia is, but like, this is another high watermark for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially in terms of like adaptation. Um, I I have not read the original A. A. Milne stories. Um, but I have, I, 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 be- I believe that they're super good, but I have a hard time believing they like, this is so, so perfect in my eyes, you know, like, I don't know, just the, the way it's paced out, the tone, the, the feel of everything is so good. So clearly Tara and I have not read the original books, but as we've established, Elise has. So I decided to ask her if she thought the movie was a good or bad adaptation. We've already heard bits and pieces of that interview, but I wanted to bring up some points right at this moment. I'd say the books themselves, they're kind of... The words that come to mind are like pastoral, Mm. um, pastel, which, putting the movies back into it for a second, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I, I love the colors that they use, especially in the original story, mm-hmm. um, in the original movie that Disney does, because the the visual aspect, I feel like, lines up very well with what I imagine from the book. And I don't know if that's because we read the books and kind of watched the movies around the same time, and so I connect those two, or if it just does a very good job representing like the tone. I think the art is beautiful. Um, I think the... Uh, the way that they draw the characters is somewhere in between the the artistry that's in the physical books themselves and the the animations that they did further on, where it's more smooth and kind of spheric. Mm-hmm. You know, there's more texture to the animals. I mean, anytime you translate a book into a movie, you're going to lose some stuff. Mm-hmm. Especially, I think, because Disney was making this movie for kids mm-hmm. and the book is... It's written for his kids, but it's also written by an adult, Mm -hmm. you know, not, and it's, there's so, like I said, there's so much philosophy in it. Mm -hmm. There's so much subtext that as a kid, you don't pick up on that then as an adult, you do. Mm -hmm. Um, And so much history interwoven into it that I think a lot of that gets lost in the translation simply because it's hard to translate. Yeah. If you're doing it for an animated and you're gearing it towards a specific audience, which is kids. So I think they do they do translate the base characters of each of them. So Rabbit's character, pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. But I think, and this is my personal opinion, I think in the in the movies they they play up their characteristics, whether good or bad. So Rabbit becomes kind of manic instead of just kind of bossy and concerned and, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And Piglet becomes kind of terrified by everything and also kind of dumb when in the books he's mostly just anxious. Um, But there's also times in the books where he's very comforting and very wise as well, and Mm -hmm. so is Rabbit. And so, you know, and I think, so I think with those, 
they just kind of take the characters and and exaggerate them a bit, which I think is typical for things that you're telling for children. Mm-hmm. It becomes more simplistic. In a lot of ways, I think there's a lot of compromise there between the um, Winnie the Pooh stories and, and Disney's format mm-hmm. that they have. But that kind of makes like a classic Disney movie. Mm-hmm. But one thing that I think why that was able to happen really well is because one, there's that breaking the fourth wall. There's the narrator. Um, these stories are kind of broken up. So like chapter by chapter, which kind of with some of Disney's shorts and the other stories that, you know, movies that they make, um, like just the structure of it seems to lend itself well to Disney films. Mm-hmm. And then also in the story, he does sing a lot of songs. I did hear there's like prose in it, right? Mm-hmm. He makes up tunes for himself and he sings to himself and he, you know, people come up with poems and I think it's mainly Winnie the Pooh, but I think other characters in the story, like Tigger has his own song mm-hmm. and that song that he sings is from the book. Okay. Um, uh, the wonderful we'll thing about Tigger is, is the, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the wonder, uh, him being the only one and, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. So, um, that is from the books. And there's a lot of other tunes in there. Um, so so it is musical. Mm-hmm. It is kind of whimsical. And so I think they reflected that really well in the movie. Um, I don't know if I could call this a critique, but this is something that confused me as a kid. Um... I was operating under the assumption for the longest time that Rabbit and Piglet were girls. Oh, no, me too. Yeah. No, uh, 100%. And I, because they don't ever really gender them except for like here or there mm-hmm. a couple of times. They they generally have heard everybody by name. Mm-hmm. Um, so that always threw me as a kid uh, and like still kind of throws me because I'm just like, yeah. Well, it's interesting because I think... Yeah, because I felt the same way, um, and it wasn't until much later that I realized they were supposed to be men. But I think there's a few things working into that, and I think a part of it probably is the vocal performance. You know, the the voices aren't as deeply masculine, especially when you compare it to Pooh and Eeyore and Owl. But additionally, those are the two characters with high anxiety, you uh-huh. know, and they fuss around their homes a lot. And I think the way that we see this anxiety, especially with Rabbit and how he's, like, trying to desperately decorate his house. And, like, it, I think, stereotypically comes across as more feminine. Like, right. you wouldn't have, like, a man who is, like, oh, my gosh, I need to frame this and put a flower pot on it for some color, you know? like Right, yeah. Or the way that, like, he tends to his garden or even the way that Rabbit skates compared to Tigger, you know? Like, Rue specifically says, Rabbit, like can you skate as gracefully or beautifully as rabbit does? And then Tigger just like plunders in, you know, in the most like chaotic way. Um, so it's, in- yeah, it is interesting how that, how that works in the end. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's weird. And I almost wish that like, it's, it, it, it I wish I had the backing of the, the Milne stories to actually like be able to compare and contrast, but also, uh, I don't know. 
they're an- they're just like anthropomorphic stuffed animals. They don't really need gender. Right. So like they- everyone in here kind of like on one hand, yes, they're all like kind of gendered, and the only one that's like explicitly the only one of them that's explicitly like a woman is Kanga, but that's because she's a mom. A mom. Mm-hmm. Which hmm. Because uh, right. in, in, I guess in the Hundred Acre Wood, the only model for womanhood is mothers, um, which is probably like if you think about it, given what we know about Milne, both yeah. AA and Christopher. I mean, it makes sense because yeah, yeah, no, it, it absolutely makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, uh, let let the Hundred Acre Wood be genderless. <laughs> I I would I I'm that's always been my conception of it. Because, like, while I figured they were women, Rabbit and Piglet, I also was just kind of content not to know, you know, just to be like, they're whatever. So. Winnie the Pooh transcends gender. (laughs) Uh, I'm trying to think if I have. The only other thing I really have, if I'm being honest, is I think it's interesting knowing Gopher is supposed to make the movie like Ameri- like their intent was to make yeah. him so American, quote unquote American, that it sets the movie in America. It it ab- it abjectly he abjectly fails to do that because <laughs> he shows up. He his whole bit where he's trying to negotiate price uh, and cost, and they're like, "Can and uh, I can't remember who he's talking to, but Owl. they're like, Owl's like, can you give me an estimate?" And he's like, "No, that's too risky. Absolutely not." I refuse to lock myself into a price for this job. And then eventually just ends up leaving because Owl doesn't like pay him soon enough. And he's just like, all right, fine. Goodbye. I'll talk to you later. Right. Uh, it's great. It's delightful. It's clearly meant to be making fun of union labor. But in reality, I'm just like, hell yeah, this rules. Well, that's what I was thinking. Cause it was like, I couldn't really decide whether it was a good or bad, like, or fair depiction of America. But I did kind of get like the, the poking fun at the union and like the the worker law rules and things, you know, because yeah. he makes a big deal about like lunch breaks and like right. sitting yeah. down and eating his food and you know all of that. And it's kind of supposed yeah. to be played for a gag. It's supposed to be played for a gag, but also, uh, yeah, go for do do it. Rub it in people's face that you get your union mandated lunch break. Unions rule. Let's go. Um. So yeah, so again, it and, and I think that's it is like a child it does well in being like a child's conception of it too. You know, it's just like there's bits and pieces of it, but at the same time it's just kind of charming and you're like, "Okay." Yeah. Elise had an entirely different opinion of Gopher and his presence in the movie. An unnecessary. <laughs> Completely unnecessary. I think, you know, they could have told that same story utilizing the characters that they had. Even if they wanted to be, you know, suggest that they put, you know, some some dynamite in there or try and lever him out or something. You know, they have the characters to do that. It's a full cast. Mm-hmm. So I think Gopher, in my personal opinion, is dead weight. Do you know why he's in the book or in the movie? <sighs> For comedic no. purposes. They wanted to set it in America and they made Amer and they make Gopher as stereotypically American and as like working american man making his own living and no. getting by as much as he could they could no. and then made sure they established he was a permanent residence of the hundred acre mm-hmm. wood to americanize it and make it appeal to an american audience 
but I don't like him as a character, so he doesn't do that for me. <laughs> right. I mean, he's fine. He's got his own thing going on, but he's he's not a part of the group, and he's obnoxious, and he's, you know, I see that, but I don't like it. <laughs> now that you've pointed it out, but... <laughs> I will say that, um, uh, so another thing I want to hit mm-hmm. and ask, um, because of the subject material, I want to know, in your opinion, which is, like, more intense and, like, worse to a degree? Uh, Heffalumps and Woozles or Pink Elephants? Because they are of a piece. They're, uh, they're very, very similar. So, here's the thing. (laughs) Yeah. Because the movie was so unsettling to me as a kid, like, everything else compared to the Heffalumps and Woozles scene was, like, way worse. So, the Heffalumps and Woozles was, like, a little, like, I think I was more so just, like, really captivated by the transitions between everything. Um... And I watched that movie more than I did Dumbo. I'd have to watch them both again to, like, fully say. Because I don't... Other... Like, I feel like lyrics-wise... Like, Heffalumps and Woozles is a little more, like, ah. But it's like, yeah. they're up, they're down, they're black, they're brown. You know, like, they, so it's, like, it's disarming. Uh-huh. Whereas, like, I remember watching Pink Elephants on Parade and just being like, oh, they're just... I wasn't really listening to what they were saying. I was just watching everything because I think visually it was just so... Right. F- fluid. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, Heffalumps and Woozles is by far the, like, more terrifying of the two. Mm-hmm. Because it's entirely playing off of, like, r- like more immediate fears. Like, Pink mm-hmm. Elephants is just psychedelic and people weren't ready for that. Yeah um as kids uh and it's it's really not that bad but when you think about the stuff that heffalumps and woozles is doing it is it is a nightmare based on essentially threats that tigger has made at poo mm-hmm. um so it's a lot more concrete in that way of like tangible things that can come get you uh so personally i think heffalumps and woozles is worse yeah uh that being said both sequences rule oh they're, they're so very fun, fun. I loved the the ones I remembered as a kid, like were the the elephants that were the blimps, and then the honeypot was like the bat or not the blimp the what are they called? What's the word? Hot air balloon. Yeah, with the honeypot as the basket, and then the two dancers in the honey, and it's like sticky. So when they like move around, it just like sticks everywhere, and it like the stretch of the honey and everything. I would say that Tara and I came away from the Heffalumps and Woozles sequence positively. We appreciated the artistry and liked that the animators had fun with it. Joey also loved it, mostly for the music. That whole Heffalumps and Woozles thing, like everybody talks about the pink elephant sequence in Dumbo, and you know what? That's a great sequence, but I love, I love that Heffalumps and Woozles. And it's a waltz. It is a waltz. It and the opening theme are both, I think, in three time. I was listening to them today. You could waltz to either of those songs at an event, and it would be totally genuine. Like, the Sherman brothers just were like, all right, we're writing waltzes for Pooh. Let's do it. 
I don't know why. I guess it's because he's like sweet and kind of moves at a slower pace. Tasman had the complete opposite reaction. The Heffalumps and Woozles song I put in the same category as Pink Elephants on Parade from Dumbo, both of which terrify the living daylights out of me. Even as an adult, I'm like, I'm sorry, who gave this the all clear? Who thought this was a good idea? Abigail also had a more negative reaction after watching the sequence, but for a different reason. I don't think it's necessarily a big thing. I don't, I, I, as an English teacher, I really tend to like overanalyze things to a point that I ruin everything. Um, (laughs) I feel there, there was the Heffalump and Woozle song. Um, and I just, I did not like how it did not sit well with me Mm. when you watch it as an adult, it seems very us versus them kind of Mm. ideologies. Um, the fact that they call them brown or black um, twice, but only call them pink or blue or white once. Mm-hmm. I just, I, I would have let it slide more if it wasn't that they did it twice. They did brown and black. Um, and it was very much like um, I did a revisionist ontology on um, black history in America. Mm-hmm. And I, I watched it and I was like, ooh, no, this is not sitting well with me. And then I was like, oh my God, I ruined Pooh Bear. (laughs) So that was horrible. Uh, But I'm just going to, I even looked it up and not that many people have really talked about it. So Mm. I was like, maybe I'm just being weird. But the way that they were talking, it sounded just like all of the ways that propaganda would make us fear black people or make us fear um, communist and all that stuff in our, in our history that we did. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like, it was just like sliding propaganda into a kid's show. And I was like, Oh, this is like Yertle the turtle. <laughs> um, okay. But, um, that is the only thing that I found kind of, um, yeah, a, a little weird. And Abigail wasn't the only one put off by the scene. Elise straight up mentioned it was propaganda, which caused us to watch it together. And this happened. So the way that they're walking, like, that's marching. And they're moving into lines and formations. Even the music seems more marching band brigade. He's wearing the shoulder pads with the fringe. He's blowing a bugle. Again, the military uniform with the gun-type nose. The fez. Mm. Like a fez. I mean, it's a bomb on top of his head, but it looks like a fez and this cannon. And it talks about them being black and white, and I think it mentions yellow at one point. And the shirt that he was wearing with that hat kind of made me think Italian. And there's, there's a sequence coming up where it's two dancers and that made me think of like russian ballet there is a man in a turban dive bombing kind of that eye in the sky hovering they're coming after the things that you love and there's like the dark stormy clouds and you're flying in them which is i mean every military movie that i've ever seen (laughs) and then at the end there they said they're black they're brown they're all around Mm -hmm. and then something about they'll pick you up and spin Mm -hmm. you you know or like They'll confuse you. They come in all shapes and sizes. You You never know where they'll be. Yeah. Like, fear tactics. Like, this sequence came off as, like, really big propaganda. Interesting. To me, rewatching it. And as a kid, you know, you don't notice that because it's all these fun colors and there's a lot of physical comedy to the sequence. And, you know, you're you're a small child, Mm -hmm. so you don't know anything. Right. Um, So it's just a good time which, you know, a lot of the Disney dance sequences are. But I think 
Um, I mean, y'all have talked about before about how, you know, there's all this subtext in labor unions and other worldly things that were going on at the time. Right. So rewatching that, it made me, yeah, I was kind of struck by how much was going on there. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously, like, not in the books. Right. I think maybe he has a dream and there are huffalumps and woozles in it and they're trying to steal his honey. But it's not as blatant as that. It's interesting what they chose to do to personify outsiders, mm-hmm. which I, did, I think is interesting because in my research, what I have found is that they are very aware of characters that by they, I mean the filmmakers, mm-hmm. very aware of the characters who are native to the hundred acre woods and yeah. then those who are considered outsiders. When they were making it, they wanted to establish that Gopher like was actually a member of the Hundred Acre Wood, whereas Tigger was like an outsider, right? Mm. He was, and like he's the threat coming in, right? Which is funny that then this Heffalumps and Woozle song warning about outsiders mm-hmm. and these people coming in precedes Tigger's entrance, right? Yes. I mean, I think that this is a little more extreme, you know, especially like when you put it like the way you just yeah. did. So it's just interesting because I think it's like an interesting. I think it perso- it it shows what people in the I think this was made in sixty four sixty four or sixty six something like that. thereabouts or somewhere in the t- late sixties. Mm-hmm. Um, what was Americans' conception of an outsider? Mm. What was the threat to the American household? The white people. Well, from that sequence, it would kids? be you know black and brown people and militaristic outsiders so i'm guessing russia it's always russia it's always russia Russia. but yes that's really interesting and um yeah there was also a man in a turban and there were um yeah basically came across as anyone but white americans yeah basically basically. (laughs) or even like British. Yeah. You know, like anyone, mm-hmm. which then, like, considering that these books technically take place in Great Britain, mm-hmm. yeah. it's like a weird, like, threat to British m- imperial power, too. Mm-hmm. It's almost like all the countries maybe that Britain was colonizing, mm-hmm. you know, they're the threat. Yeah. Because they could turn around and hit us next, you know, or like. Right. Or which is like interesting that. because the movie is made in America. Yeah which was originally a British colony. Mm-hmm. I was kind of like, what are you doing there? <laughs> Sir. Is this like some form of Stockholm Syndrome? Like, what's going on? <laughs> what are we doing? Yeah, that honey looks disgusting. <laughs> I would not want to eat that. Yeah, I'm like trying to imagine what it would taste like. And I'm just like, I I got nothing. No, uh-uh. Where most cartoon food actually looks good, this looks disgusting. The texture Absolutely looks want awful. Nothing part of it. Like, I don't no think I could eat it. it just based on the texture. Absolutely it's not. It's, like, too no. sticky. It's kind of like a, like a toffee, but before it's hard. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, like, it gets stuck in your teeth and everything. Gross. Yeah, no, absolutely not. Disgusting. Disgusting. Yeah. Um... Oh, the songs. That was one thing I wanted to bring up. Every single one of these songs is still ingrained in my head. 
And when the theme song, the Winnie the Pooh theme song came on, I got a little too hype. I don't, I don't, I like, I don't understand how you, I'm sorry to keep harping on this. I don't understand how you don't hear that song and immediately not feel like cozy. I hear the song and I felt cozy. And then the actual honey tree short started. And I was like, but that's the thing. Like the whole time I was like going back and forth between like, you know, all one fun whimsy. And then being like, I don't like how I feel watching this. It was so it was like a difficult watch for me because of that, because I didn't really know, like, <laughs> it just it was oscillating too much. But like one, I think one of the safe spots of the movie, and I think this was true as a kid, were the songs. Like, I think, there, you know, I, I know people had issues that it wasn't like the verse from the original book and everything, but I think that they're simple and whimsical enough especially when Sterling Holloway is singing them and you can just like hum them anywhere. And you're just like, ah, da, 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 da. Like, you know, you're just kind of, it's easy. I think that is where the warm fuzziness is for me. And that's usually the case. Like I, like with my connection with music and everything, that's typically that. I mean, that just checks out for me. But then like when the yeah. actual like actions were happening, I was like, <laughs> It's too much. It's too much. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, speaking of things that are too much, there's one visual during the flooding sequence where Piglet is trying to bail out his house into a pot that is also f- flooding out of the river, and I'm just like, if that ain't a mood. That image has stuck with me for so uh-huh. long because it was another one that stressed me out as a kid because it's yep. like you're not helping yourself. No, but it feel it, you feel like you're helping, and then you realize that like everything you were it it is it is the child's version. It is the child's way of thinking about rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Yes, <laughs> completely useless. You think you're doing it is it it is using paper straws instead of plastic. Yes. Oh my it's gosh. Com- yeah. It. Uh, I wish I could find that fun. <laughs> me too it's, but i that, just I, that's I, not fun it's there not are, fun. like i'm not saying that like there aren't any moments that are panic inducing like ra- rabbit's panic attack in the woods when he's trying oh my to God. get i'm um, just like hey uh the, the you trying to traumatize tigger bad you you doing it to yourself not good either no you did not deserve this. No one deserves this to happen to them. I felt that panic attack, though, in my soul. Like, uh-huh. watching the visuals and everything, I'm like, this is too familiar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I... It also it also feels like they're pulling on, um, obviously not to the same intensity, but it feels like they're kind of pulling a little bit on the Snow White panic attack in the woods. Yeah. I got that, too. Just, like, with, like, the everything you, everything you look at becomes terrifying Hostile. and a yeah. little bit with alice in wonderland too when she like gets kind of lost in the tugly wood and everything kind of warps and everything that was so charming and fun before is now more threatening and different and scary while we're on the topic of rabbit's panic attack i wanted to quickly bring up a topic i have seen referenced in relation to winnie the pooh all over social media the mental health representation It came up in two interviews. Dr. Justin Rollins mentioned it briefly when describing his affinity for Eeyore as a child. Um, And I watched Winnie the Pooh a lot, but that's just because everyone of my generation did. Lots of Winnie the Pooh. There's a lot of Winnie the Pooh stands. Mm -hmm. Um, Many of them. Mm -hmm. The thing is, I I liked Winnie the Pooh, but I really identified with uh, Eeyore. 
And yeah, it was one of the first revelations when I was a kid that, you know what? I think I might have slight depression. When you start to see yourself in Eeyore, your parents are like, no, you're really, no, no, you're much more of a, of a Winnie the Pooh. And you're like, no, I really do identify with Eeyore. <laughs> yeah, that hits too close to home. <laughs> Just a little bit. Oof. Mine was a rabbit. Mm. <laughs> was really? Like, yeah. What? Really? Just yeah. like the, yeah. like... I don't express it, but that's how my mind is all the time. Just like that whole like running around. I just picture the scene where like Rabbit is trying to like get everything ready and then Pooh's stuck in, in the hole and like it's like, oh, it's fine. I'm just going to make it a decoration and it looks good and look at that. Look, it's great. And then it like looks terrible and Rabbit's like, it's fine. Everything's okay. <laughs> it's okay. What are you talking about? And then Tasman mentioned the mental health depictions as well. Um, I really love, obviously, as an adult, you learn about the the mental health representation that the characters manifest, which is so, so fascinating. And I do really want to go back and reread them mm-hmm. and kind of look into and, like, analyse that a bit more. But I feel like that's such a clever thing to do. It's almost... Um, the, the kind of modern-day equivalent would almost be Inside Out. Um, but I love the idea. I love it when... Um, Something on the surface is just like a cute kid's film and then you look deeper into it and you're like, oh my god, this is literally an analysis of mankind. This correlation that Tasman is referring to is called The Disorders of Characters in Winnie the Pooh, which was first conceptualized in an article published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal in the year 2000. The article is called Pathology in the Hundred Acre Wood, a Neurodevelopmental Perspective on A.A. Milne. The purpose of the article was to show that anyone can have a mental health disorder and to highlight the need to support our mental health and those around us who suffer from one. It's a short article. I read it. There's many fan theories about the disorders that each character represents, but the original article lists them as follows. Pooh has ADHD and OCD, and the article speculates that he may develop Tourette's down the road. Piglet has a general anxiety disorder. Eeyore has depression. Owl has dyslexia. Rabbit, narcissism, and Tigger, ADHD as well. The article also makes some wild speculations about Kanga and Rue's home life, basically saying Kanga provides an unstable household and Rue will be a delinquent because he grew up in a single-parent home. Um, It also says Christopher Robin could develop, quote, gender identity issues based on some illustrations that they found in a book. I think those are a bit far-fetched, but that's just my take. And the theory has developed in different ways. I've seen infographics that say Pooh has an eating disorder and Rabbit has OCD and Rue autism. You've probably seen them on your timeline at some point. But either way, I think it's difficult to watch this movie with a modern understanding and not notice the correlation. This movie, like, I I appreciate that, like, People tend to consider Disney movies as like, oh, they're all super safe for kids. But then they all have like all of the Disney of like this era and previous all like and and we've talked about this. They don't shy away from showing like real fucked up stuff to kids, (laughs) but in a way that kids can kind of comprehend. This is very much a hey, don't go into the woods without like supervision. Right. Like you could get lost. You could get lost. Things are scary out there. Like noises that you think are like safe and comforting normally like frogs so suddenly become way worse when you're out in the woods alone you know what it reminded me of just now 
What? The time I was three years old in Chuck E. Cheese and I got lost in the tunnel system up above. Oh, buddy. Yeah, that would do it. <laughs> and I didn't know how to get out. <laughs> yeah. No one escapes the tunnels. No. No one, no one escapes the Chuck E. Cheese tunnels. I never went up ever. Uh, like, that traumatized me so much, I never went yep. up again. Like, Don't forget, you're here forever. Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> the rat, will, the mouse will come find you. <laughs> You'll have to become part of the band. The mouse will always find you. No. What mouse am I talking about? Who can say? (laughs) Just one of them. One of them will always find you. The mouse owns your soul forever. Christopher Robin, why (sighs) are you not wearing pants in the snow? I think he's still wearing his shorts. He is. But he need he needs to put on pants. He needs to put on pants. I was like, all of the Sir. all of these all of these people need to put on pants. Please, it's I so, beg you. I love how Rue was just like, I'm just gonna wear a scarf. It's like what? <laughs> Kid, please do not. No coats. Coats are needed. Coats are important, and they're very, very, very nice. Rabbit also. This was a funny observation I made. Rabbit, rabbit, especially in when put next to Tigger, gave me like major Squidward vibes. <laughs> Oh my god! Yeah, but yeah, like, rabbit is except, rabbit is the rabbit is proto Squidward. Yeah, yeah, but like with more sympathy. Like Squidward's just it takes very little for him to feel bad about anything. Rabbit at least kind of comes around at the end of Tigger Two, and he's like, "Wow, bouncing actually does make you a Tigger." And I'm sorry, I wanted to take that away from you, but like everything about Rabbit is Squidward. Like. Pooh coming over for dinner to eat lunch and getting stuck and all that is like major Squidward vibes. And then just like the dread of whenever Tigger is nearby. And then like Tigger and SpongeBob both have like that chaotic yeah. preschool energy. Like, yeah. Yeah, they really do, huh? <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. <sighs> so really, SpongeBob is just Winnie the Pooh, but for 2000s kids. No, this is is this Krusty Krab? No, this is Pooh. <laughs> Yikes! See, yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I, 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 I see you there. I see that. That makes that. That's not a read I was expecting today, but okay, sure. <laughs> that was like a that was a random late night thought I had. Yeah, no, that's fair. Also, and this may have been because I was editing the Jungle Book discussion recently but also something i noticed when i was working on this and reading watching the movie was i as a kid thought that tigger and rabbit like were not i don't want to say dating because they're stuffed animals but like kind of like also but also like a very similar vibe to baloo and bagheera right yeah very very odd couple energy Mm -hmm. uh I don't, yeah, I could be convinced of a will they won't they with Rabbit and Tigger. <laughs> it makes sense. Uh, to, to borrow a quote from Bob's Burgers, uh, when you reconnect in your 30s, you are totally going to start dating. <laughs> yes. And I am sure there is a fan fiction out there somewhere. Oh, God, I don't need to, oh, I don't need to think about Winnie the Pooh fan fiction. I, okay, well, now I have to know how many are listen, there. We've, listen, we've already got Pooh getting stuck in Rabbit's hole. We don't need to get that taken any further. Okay, so on fanfiction.net. Oh, no. The oh, worst wait. place to be. We've got... What's an archive? Well, hold on. 
What? What is that face? Alex. What cursed knowledge have you uncovered? <laughs> okay. Winnie the Pooh and the Hundred Acre Screw. No. Rated M. Alex, but I think it's no. just Christopher Robin. Yeah, it's Christopher Robin and like a female OC. So oh, like that's that's but still just the title alone, I was like uh, Sir, <laughs> did not need to hear this. Okay, so in Winnie the Pooh, the books, only 128. Okay. That's not that's not as bad as I was expecting. In Winnie the Pooh, the movie, only 47. Okay, so no one's out here writing Winnie the Pooh fanfics. That's right, fine. Right. Now, if we look at Archive of Our Own. Oh, no. In just Winnie the Pooh works, 241. So again. Okay. So no one's writing Winnie the Pooh fic. That's but, fine. That's okay. great. No, no one, no one, no one go write Winnie the Pooh fix. Please don't do it. This but, is not a call to arms. Like, oh my God. At least one, two, three. One, two, three, four, five. Six of them have been updated this year. So like people are what? actively writing these fix. <laughs> This is concerning. Who who is out there? Who is out there writing Winnie the Pooh fanfic? Swamp Bogman. Pooh says damn. Okay, that's a pretty all right name. Fall weather descends on the hundred acre wood. Pooh Bear waits in vain for it. I'm wondering how much this? of this you're going to keep in the episode. No, I'm just having fun at this time. Oh my god, why is sobriety tagged in this? <laughs> Racism? Why are you tagging racism in a poofic? I mean, uh, I'm not. No, no. Fluff. What about the? Okay, of course we're gonna have fluff in a Winnie the Poofic. I'm wondering where the stuff is. Ah. Okay, there's. <laughs> oh my god. There's this one called Honey Pot. Oh my god. It is it is Mickey Mouse and Woody the Pooh. And it's tagged smut and cursed smut. <sighs> okay, I'm stopping. I'm stopping. <laughs> Anyways. Anyways. Um, let's put this train firmly back on the tracks. Oh, 100%. Yes, continue. Uh, I really only have like one more thing and okay. I just kind of want to talk about like the ending. Yeah. What a fucking bummer. Yeah. It's really good, but it hurts. I kind of like, I liked it because of that, though. Like, Yeah, no, of course. But it's just, it's it's wild how much this, this just has a fucking direct line to my fucking heart. Just like, all right, cool. Time to cry. Just push the cry button Aww. movie and just do it. It's fine. Just the notion, like, the fact that the end of this movie is like, yeah, we all have to grow up and move on at some point, but like... That shit never leaves you. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not necessarily, like, they're always, like, y you can't really ever go home at a certain point, but, like, that shit never leaves you, and they'll all be, wait, like, if you want to revisit that, you can, and it'll always be there for you. But you do have to grow up and move on at a certain point. You have to close the book at some point. And it fucking hurts <laughs> every time. I think I love the messaging of it. Like, again, it's, like, sad 
but also very sweet and very Winnie the Pooh. I wished, and I guess we kind of get this in the first one, but I do wish we had at least one moment between Winnie the Pooh and Christopher that was that kind of emotionally pure <laughs> toward at some point. Cause like we have in honey tree, like Christopher Robin helping him with the bees and everything. Yeah. But like when they finally got together, just the two of them to talk, I was like, wow, this is like the first time we've seen this. And I guess, you know, it makes sense. It's three shorts thrown together. And I think honestly, out of every single package film that we've watched, this has the most cohesion. Yes. Out of all of them. Far and away. And I think the ending is a large part of that because it actually ends decently. On an on a, on a ending yes. instead of just stopping. When we brought up the ending, that was another part of the movie that got a lot of different opinions. Similar to me and Tara, Jack liked it. The OG Winnie the Pooh. Um, between you and Joey, I've now heard more compelling stuff about the newer one from 2011. But the original with... Um, that heartbreaking ending with Christopher Robin is just a lot and means a lot to me. But Elise, who has read the book, had a different take. You know, we've talked before about how it's kind of a conglomeration pieces kind of clipped together from the series itself. So I believe the first story that they told or part of the first story is from the Winnie the Pooh book, the first one. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of go through the books and they take bits and pieces from each of them. The final scene in the Winnie, in the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh is actually from the house at Pooh corner. That's the one where he and Christopher Robin take their walk and talk about the future and end up sitting on the Hill. Um, It's interesting though. They changed some of the dialogue in that scene. Mm. So in the house at Pooh corner, um it's it's okay yeah, you i'm actually it. gonna so, pull it out yeah, no, i brought great. i brought a physical copy of the book because i wanted to i wanted to get it right okay so christopher robin is talking to Pooh, and he says Pooh, when i'm you know when i'm not doing nothing will you come up here sometimes just me yes Pooh. will you be the here too Yes, Pooh, I will be, really. I promise I will be, Pooh. That's good, said Pooh. Pooh, promise me you won't forget about me, ever, not even when I'm a hundred. Pooh thought for a little. How old shall I be then? Ninety-nine, Pooh nodded, I promise. And so then they they talk for a little bit longer, and then and then they go off together, and the final lines are, but whatever, wherever they go, and whatever happens to them on the way, in that enchanted place on the top of the forest, a little boy and his bear will always be playing. I see why you cry. <laughs> <laughs> but in, in The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, mm-hmm. it's, they change it okay. so that, um, let's see. So it changes. So Christopher Robin starts talking about, you know something, Pooh? I'm not going to be doing nothing anymore. Winnie the Pooh says, you mean never again. Well, not so much, Pooh. When I'm away just doing nothing, will you come up here sometimes? You mean alone, just me. And then he says, yes. Mm -hmm. And Pooh, promise you won't forget me, ever. Mm -hmm. 
So it's Christopher Robin asking him not to forget. And he doesn't say that he's going to be there. In the book, he clearly says, I'll be here. I'll be here always. Right. And it ends when the in the book, it's this celebration of childhood. Mm-hmm. And he he doesn't want to go. Mm-hmm. To school, he doesn't want to learn all these things and leave his family and his and his toys and his his hundred acre wood. Mm-hmm. It's a sad thing that he's growing up and moving on. Right. But in the movie, you know, they have they said, oh, they don't know where he's going, but he's going to be learning his ABCs and these things mm-hmm. and those things, and they're having the celebration, and then he very clearly says, I won't be here, but promise you'll come up here. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like. It's kind of sad, but also kind of exciting. And it's a thing that's happening. And it's just kind of the natural order of things. Right. Which is a very different tone than the book that it lands on. Yeah. Which, and I'm not sure why that is. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's just the way that people were raising children at that time or the idea that they had about kids growing up and moving on and putting childish things behind them. Mm-hmm. But that, for me, wasn't true to the original story. Yeah. Even though it's, if you're just looking at the movie, it's a good ending. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't completely discount, you know, the the house at Pooh Corner and how it ends. But it's, it, the wording was different enough that I... At least to me, it seemed like they were pushing a different message. Yeah. Telling a different message than the original story. Yeah. And how the people, I mean, obviously the book speaks more to a single creator, the Mm -hmm. author, and how he feels. And especially since he wrote this book for his child, Mm -hmm. I think that's really beautiful. Um, And probably, you know, says a lot about him himself and how he felt about growing up in that environment that he was raised in and his views on how children are being raised at the time um but then you have the many adventures of winnie the pooh and that's more of a collection of creators and artists and producers and influencers who are who are kind of shaping the message of the story Mm -hmm. kind of making it more this is how things happen it's more of a light-hearted take Mm -hmm. on kids growing up and moving on than the story and then but it's very clearly geared towards just children i think if you want more of the like winnie the pooh christopher robin stuff i think and we will not be talking about them in depth Mm -hmm. um you cannot make us there's too many of them um, but I think some of the other Pooh movies that Disney put out, like specifically Search for Christopher Robin, mm-hmm. uh, digs into that a bit more. Um, cause Search for Christopher Robin digs into the leaving for school stuff and like the emotions that go along with it, yeah. uh, a lot more. Um, and like, that's, that's the Disney movie that I'm, that's the, that's the Pooh movie that I'm the most familiar with, mm-hmm. uh, of the, of the pre 2011 ones. So it's just, they definitely, like, they are willing to explore that relationship, but in, a pa- in like, a package movie like this, I don't think they necessarily have the time. Right. Or, like, because it wasn't really conceived as a full movie, you know, like, these were made within yeah. a 10-year period, so obviously that relationship isn't going to build. Like, right. my personal favorite is Pooh's Heffalump movie. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's not a movie about Pooh, though. That's a movie about Rue. Yeah, but it's still a fun movie. And yeah, Pooh's in it. Yeah. 
yeah, I guess we I guess we could kind of lightly talk about those because they're they're important to the con- to the overall conception of Pooh. Maybe we do that with 2011 Pooh. That's probably a good idea because, because they we're, haven't we're, happened yeah. yet. Yeah, and we're going to talk about how we get to 2011 anyways. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. Yeah, so we'll do we'll, that with yeah, that one. Yeah, we'll leave the Christopher Robin. We'll leave the uh, the what's what's his fucking name, uh, the the search for Christopher Robin stuff in here. But mm-hmm. yeah, we can we can trim the rest of that. I haven't seen that one though, so I'll have to watch it. It's it's really good. Aww. And uh, like the the poo stuff in Kingdom Hearts two is uh, search for Christopher Robin. So all okay. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. I'm basically done. Yeah, I got like, nothing is, else. Yeah, see, that's the thing. This movie is like this movie's really good, and this is gonna be a rather short episode be- because like all the imp- all the all the important shit is in the history. But like this movie rules. But like, uh, unless you want to talk about like childhood education and like how to teach kids stuff, which I don't know how I don't know anything about. Right? No, can't do. Like that. this movie is this movie good. Two thumbs up. Watch it. It's good. But I give there's... it like a thumb up. Yeah. Uh, hmm. I give it like a thumb up. Huh. I'm not looking forward to our updated ratings now. <laughs> Actually, you might. Ooh. For one specific reason. Hmm. Um. Not to not to jump ahead of anything, but Fantasia may have moved up. Let's go. <laughs> well, that's all from us this week. You can find our show on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. And hey, if you like what you hear, be sure to leave us a review. Uh, five stars only, of course. You can find me on Twitter at Alex underscore Isaac. And you can find me at Play underscore Champion. You can also follow the show at Dream Deeper Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And you can write to us at dreamalittledeeperpod at gmail.com. Special thanks to all of our guests for taking the time to talk to us this week. You can follow Tasman's book blog at T Books and Tasman on YouTube and Instagram. And you can find their poetry page at Tasman May Poetry. You can follow Joey on Twitter at RMFezman. And he said to encourage our listeners to support local theater. You can follow Abigail on Instagram at Abigail's underscore living underscore fairy tale. You can follow Jack on his blog, The Neon Caledonian. And you can find Dr. Justin Rollins at J underscore O underscore Rollins on Twitter. Thank you all for listening. Join us next time as we discuss The Rescuers. Until then, dream on, silly dreamers.